Welcome again to Change Your Mind About You, where we are on a journey together to awaken to our true identity. I'm your host, Kevin Mack. In today's episode, we're going to continue to discuss the events of Jesus' crucifixion to determine what more we can learn from this much-vaunted historical event. In the previous episode, we left off where Jesus was condemned to death at his mock trial before the Sanhedrin. Let's pick up the story now again from this point. After the Sanhedrin condemned him to death, let's notice what happens here in Matthew chapter 26, verses 67 and 68. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? The hatred of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, becomes manifested here through physical attacks upon Jesus. How could Jesus' claim to be the Son of God provoke such violence? It's simply the Sanhedrin's conception of the relationship between God and human beings is different than what Jesus perceived. They were convinced that mankind and God were completely separate entities. In their perception, God is eternal and holy, perfect, while all human beings are sinners, imperfect, and subject to death. So Jesus' statement about himself being God's son was a complete contradiction of their belief system. It was also viewed as a challenge to their authority, which they were used to exercising in a very heavy-handed way. But in Jesus' own perception, he was merely stating a fact that he could not deny in truth. Yet even though he spoke the truth, did he defend himself against their violent attack? No. He was defenseless as a lamb being led to the slaughter. Thus the prophecy, the prophecy rather, of Isaiah was fulfilled. Isaiah 53 and verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. But Jesus' defenselessness did not stop here. It continued. That same morning, the chief priests led Jesus away to be questioned by the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Let's pick up the story now in Matthew 27 and verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. The expression, the king of the Jews, means the Messiah, a king descended from King David who would usher in the Messianic Age, according to Jewish belief. Pilate asks Jesus if he is that king, and Jesus tells him that he is. At this point, the chief priests and elders 
throw a variety of accusations at Jesus, which causes Pilate to question Jesus again, saying in verses 13 and 14 of Matthew 27, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? Pilate asked him. But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. The Greek word translated amazement here is thaumadzo, T-H-A-U-M-A-Z-O, which means to marvel, but to marvel in the sense of having great admiration for Jesus' defenselessness. During the course of those accusations that were made against him by the chief priests and the members of the Sanhedrin, Jesus, it came out that Jesus was originally from Galilee. At the time, Galilee was under, the, was under Herod's jurisdiction, and he just happened to be in Jerusalem for the upcoming Passover festival. So Pilate sends Jesus to Herod to have Herod cross-examine him. Let's pick up that story now in Luke 23, verses 8 through 11. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he had hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him, that is, Jesus. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe, and then sent him back to Pilate. In this scene, Herod is initially very pleased to see Jesus and bombards him with questions. It's clear from what's recorded by Luke that Herod was just primarily seeking to be entertained by Jesus, to have him perform some sort of sign or miracle in front of him. Yet Jesus would not accommodate him. He did not answer a single question that Herod asked him. Jesus' lack of interest in Herod's questioning undoubtedly must have annoyed Herod. So between the accusations laid upon him by the chief priests and Jesus' lack of response to Herod's questions, Herod, in a display of displeasure, has his soldiers mock and ridicule Jesus. They, in effect, say to him, You claim to be a king? We'll give you a robe and send you back to Pilate. So that's what they did. So now Jesus is back before Pilate. Pilate calls the chief priests together, with the entire crowd that is now gathered, and tells them in Luke 23 and verses 14 through 16. He said, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him, and then release him. So Pilate, after cross-examining Jesus, determines that whatever crime he may or may not have committed, he certainly didn't do anything that was worthy of death, 
contrary to what the chief priests had charged. Therefore, Pilate offers to punish Jesus and then just release him. But that offer, of course, did not satisfy the chief priests. They wanted Jesus dead. So they decided to employ another option to get what they wanted. We read about it here in Mark chapter 15 and verses 6 through 8. It says there, Now it was a custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Now at this point here, scholars and historians differ widely. There are some that believe that the only historical evidence of this custom of releasing a prisoner prior to the Passover is found only in the Gospels. Yet there are others who disagree, citing such sources as the writings of Josephus, the first-century Jewish historian, who confirms the existence of the custom. So historical evidence here is unclear. We don't know for sure if this custom truly existed or not. However, what do we know about the circumstances at that time? We know that all this was taking place in Jerusalem shortly before the Passover. Many were gathered in the city at that time as, the, as they made their annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival. Also, in Judea at that time, there were frequent uprisings, as we had just read in Mark. These uprisings took place as an outgrowth of the people's desire for freedom from their Roman oppressors. Thus, various quote-unquote messiahs arose during this period in rebellion against the Roman occupation of their country. Due to this state of unrest, it took a heavy-handed approach by the rulers to maintain order in the region. So it was under these conditions, and to maintain order during the festival where there's this huge increase in population, that Pontius Pilate, along with his, crew, uh, his troops, come from Caesarea to Jerusalem in order to help maintain that order. Caiaphas, the high priest, who presided over Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, he was also the ruler of Jerusalem. And the Sanhedrin, of course, were the members of his ruling council. So let's set the scene. Jesus comes into these conditions as a revolutionary teacher. The people were amazed at his teachings, and news spread quickly about him throughout Galilee, it says in Mark chapter 1 and verses 27 and 28. And now he comes to Jerusalem, the week before his trial and is greeted with much fanfare. While observing this, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they became agitated and envious of Jesus' popularity. 
they say so here in John chapter 12, verse 19, where they said, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So now here, the stage is set. Jesus was clearly a threat to the ruling class of his day because he was admired now by the general populace. Since he was a threat to the ruling class, he had to be dealt with. That is why Caiaphas and the chief priests had Jesus arrested and condemned to death in an illegitimate trial under the cover of darkness. Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin now have brought Jesus to Pilate with the intent of having him executed. Now at this point, it's helpful to note that the historical record seems to indicate a close working relationship between Pilate and Caiaphas. Both were known for their heavy-handed grip on power, which they could largely justify by the state of unrest in the region at that time. If you combine all these circumstances with the large gathering in Jerusalem just before the Passover festival and considering the volatility in the region at that time, doesn't it seem reasonable that as a result of what is happening with Jesus, a popular teacher, that a violent uprising could very likely occur? One side is crying out for justice and demanding that Jesus be released. For these people admired this wonderful teacher and healer and perceived him to be an innocent man. To this group, Jesus represents freedom from oppression of Roman rule. Yet there is another side crying out just as loud for his death by crucifixion. To this side, Jesus represents unwanted change, resulting in their loss of power and privilege. With a great divide like this among this enormous group of people gathered in the city, it's highly likely that things could get out of hand quite quickly. Such a disturbance as this poses an even greater threat, though, to those in power than those seeking freedom. So what do politicians do when they sense their power and position is threatened by volatile conditions such as this? They tend to make deals, compromises if you will, in order to quell any uprising and maintain a semblance of peace as well as their grip on power. Military force acts as their insurance policy, which they will only use in desperation. Now the political powers threatened in this case are Pilate and Caiaphas. So how do the two conspire to get what they want and at the same time maintain a tenuous peace? Well, the conflict they need to resolve is between the two sides of the argument. One side is seeking freedom from Roman oppression, and the other side wants to hold on to power. How can both be accomplished at the same time? Enter Barabbas. Barabbas is what you might call a freedom fighter. 
an insurrectionist, as we read earlier in Mark 15, verse 7. He's a man of war. Now, the traditional view of the Messiah at the time was that of a king and military leader who would free the Jews from oppression. In fact, Matthew's gospel refers to Barabbas as Jesus Barabbas, the name Jesus meaning Savior. So his character appears to fit much more closely with the historical image of the Messiah as a king and conqueror than does Jesus, a man of peace, committed to nonviolence. Knowing this, Caiaphas then strikes a deal with Pilate to release Barabbas in exchange for Jesus. Caiaphas, along with the Sanhedrin and their associates, use their rhetoric to persuade the people, who are already in a deeply emotional state and crying out for freedom, that Barabbas is much better suited to the role of Messiah than Jesus, because he is a warrior who will fight for their freedom from oppression. Don't we hear that a lot from politicians today? I will fight for you! So with that plan hatched, here's how the plan is presented by Pilate to the people in Matthew 27, verse 17. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? In other words, what Pilate is really asking them is, Who do you want to be your savior from oppression? The freedom fighter? Or the man of peace. The chief priests and the elders with their rhetoric have already stirred up the crowd into a frenzy and convinced them now to choose the fighter. Barabbas. The plan had worked. Barabbas is freed. And now Jesus no longer valued by the people as a symbol of their freedom, is sentenced to be crucified. Pilate keeps the tenuous peace, and Caiaphas gets what he wants, and both maintain their power and the status quo. I ask you, my friends, is this not a familiar story? Politicians using whatever means they have at their disposal to consolidate their power at the expense of the innocent? Jesus, by defenselessly undergoing the events of his arrest, trial, and condemnation to death by crucifixion, demonstrates to us the utter madness human beings are capable of. But there is one final lesson that remains to be taught, and he teaches us this lesson while hanging on the cross. We will talk about that in our next episode 
of Change Your Mind About You. Thank you for listening today. I'm your host, Kevin Mack, reminding you that the primary characteristic that Jesus taught us from his condemnation to death by the Sanhedrin to his death sentence by crucifixion administered under Pilate was defenselessness. He did not utter a word in defense of his innocence. He was led like an innocent Passover lamb to the slaughter. Jesus' defenselessness stands in sharp contrast to the corrupt political machinations and rhetorical deceptions of those in power used to manipulate large groups of people in order for them to get what they want. If we are honest with ourselves, we must admit that such human behavior is as common today as it was back then. Thus, Jesus' defenselessness in the face of false accusation stands as a beacon of shining light before us, teaching us that even though some may go so far as to torture and kill the body, such treatment can ultimately bring no harm to us at all. Yet, he could only succeed at this by maintaining complete and unwavering trust in the only true source of eternal life. So, until next time, take good care and be well, my friends. <laughs>